look good today. Not that you don't look good every day, but there's something. You look really amazing today. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I was out last week. We were, uh, had a quick trip out of the country, but um, so I missed last Sunday, and I always feel uh, like I'm not at home when I'm not here. So, so good to be here today. Love you guys. We're going to continue with our series on royalty. We've been probably eight weeks on this series, and I want to pick up on the message that I preached two weeks ago called Reigning in Life. I I just feel like God has a couple more things that that he wants to talk to us about uh, regarding Reigning in Life. And so I'll I'll recap just a couple things shortly, but then we'll we'll get into the the crux of the message. You know, two two weeks ago, I, I really focused more on receiving, there's two things it says to reign in life we have to receive is the abundance of grace and then and the gift of righteousness. So, you know, I focus more on receiving the abundance of grace. Today I want to hone in more on receiving the gift of righteousness and just talk about that a little bit. And we'll see where it goes. So, our, uh, our key verse for this is Romans 5.17. It says, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those that receive the gift, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Father, Lord, we thank you today for your word. God, I pray that Holy Spirit, I ask you to teach today, teach us your word, instruct us. Lord, let it resonate deep within our spirits today. And Father, I thank you that we're going to leave here better than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. We said last week, that, or two weeks ago, that one thing we think of or two things we think of that are certainties in life, it was credited to Ben Franklin, was that he said that there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. I don't think we like, really like either one of those. Uh, but the Apostle Paul says something different. He says that if by one man's offense, meaning Adam, if by one man's offense death reigned, much more to a greater degree, even some translations say it's even more certain that those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. So. Here's what he's saying. He said, as certain as death is. So what's, more, what's the mortality rate unless Jesus returns? A hundred. You will not escape without passing away unless you've been saved and Jesus returns and raptures you while you're alive. The mortality rate of sin and death is 100%. But the Apostle Paul says, those that receive the abundance of grace to a greater degree, it's more certain more certain than death that we would reign in life. And if death is 100% and it affects everybody, it should be a greater certainty that we should actually have a reign in life. And so I really ask the question, why do I see more Christians not reigning in life? Why? Uh, You know, sometimes because we don't know. Sometimes we don't know. Hosea says this, that my people perish for what? Lack of knowledge. He doesn't say that sinners perish for lack of knowledge. He doesn't say that unsaved. He says, my people. So sometimes there's a thing in the body of Christ where there are certain truths that that are true, but we just don't recognize them or we don't know them. And it says that we will reign in life. It says those that receive the abundance of grace. So sometimes the reason we don't do it is because we think and we're waiting for God to reign in our life. And it's true that he does reign in my life, but he's given the responsibility to me. And so a lot of times it says says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign. That's you. And so a lot of times we sit there and like, well, I'm just waiting on God. And you know what? God's saying, well, I'm just waiting on you. Right? And so you can spend your whole time, your whole life waiting on God to do something and not use the authority that he's given you in a certain situation to do something yourself. See, so sometimes it's it's that we don't know. Sometimes that 
You know, we, we um, are waiting on him. Sometimes we think that, oh, well, brother, we're going to reign one day in the millennial kingdom. That's true. But it's not, oh, it's not the only truth. See, sometimes we relegate reigning till later in eternity. But this says that we will reign now. Like we reign in life now. You're like, well, in the sweet by and by, what about the not so sweet here and now? Right? See that God has equipped you and authorized you to actually reign over issues and circumstances in life. And here's what happens a lot of times is when we don't recognize the source of something, we actually allow something to reign us that we should be reigning over. So it says, that's why Jesus says, he says, the thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And so what happens sometimes when we're like, well, God sent this sickness into my life, so I guess I'll just buck up and, and go through it because he's trying to teach me something. See, when I embrace something that the enemy meant for harm, I actually allow it to reign over me instead of saying, no, Jesus paid for that thing. Get out of my life. You have no business here. See, we can end up embracing the very thing that we're to be standing and reigning over. That's not how God wants it to work. You have to recognize the source. You have to recognize, did this come from the enemy? Or is this part of the abundant life that God has promised me? You know, if it's from the enemy, if it's sin, if it's sickness, if it's disease, if it's bondage, if it's perversion, if it's bad habits, or, or any part of the, the curse, whether it's poverty or la any of those things that are part of the curse, part of sin, you should be reigning in life over them. And you only do that when you receive. It says, those who receive will reign. And so there's a lot of believers that have received to a measure. They've received the forgiveness of sins, but not to the point where they actually can reign in life. So I want to look at this word reign. The word reign means this. It means to be king, to exercise kingly power, to rule, to exercise the highest influence or to control. To be king, to exercise kingly power, to exercise the highest influence, or to control. So I was kind of reviewing my notes this morning. That word influence stuck out to me. See, there's, there's situations in life that the enemy brings a, a, into your life it doesn't mean that your life's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you're going to be absent of dealing with sickness, absent of dealing with death, absent of dealing with, with issues. What it means is I influence them and I don't allow them to influence me. See, a lot of times you can go through something and you allow it to influence you and you respond to it. Like if I live in response to what the enemy is doing, who's setting my agenda? He is. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so this word influence, I'm thinking today, what, what do we think about on social media? There's, you ever hear of social media influencers? What's an influencer? It's somebody that can actually affect the buying decision of somebody else based on their knowledge, based on their authority, based on their relationship or their position. That I have... I am looked up to so much that what I say, if I was a social media influencer and I said Deer Park water is the best water in the world, guess what people would do that followed me? They would go buy this water. I want to tell you this. God told me this morning, he said, you're a kingdom influencer. Forget social media. Jesus said that those born among men, or those born among women, there was not one greater, a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Do you realize in John the Baptist's time, John lived under the old covenant, 
He was the greatest influencer, if you will, of the Old Covenant. He actually said there was not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. He was actually the one that turned the hearts of the fathers to the kids. He was the one that actually paved the way for Jesus. And he said that he whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. That tells me you're an influencer. You're an influencer. Forget social media. I, I learned a new term over the weekend, Swifty. Anybody know what a Swifty is? Well, you guys know that better than the Bible. <laughs> I'm having dinner with uh, Seth and Evie and their kids, and, and uh, Gretchen's talking about Swifties. I'm like, is that like a fast runner? Like, like what is Oh, no, it's anybody loves Taylor Swift? She's a... I looked her up. She's what's called a power influencer. Her influence is nothing compared to what you carry. You're a kingdom influencer. You have the ability and the right to bring the kingdom of this of God into situations of life and destroy the works of the enemy. All right, so let's, uh, those that receive will reign in life, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. I want to talk a little bit today about the gift of righteousness. We talked about grace, we talked about uh, last week, but I want to go, let's go ahead and read. We're going to read Romans, uh, go to the next slide. We're going to read 5, 17 through 21, and then I really want to hone in on, on what it is that, that we've been made. You know, last week Seth said this, he says that, that we are not sinners, Saved by grace. I know we say that. We say that a lot. But I want to show you from Scripture why that, why what he said is, is very accurate. It says, if by one man's offense, verse 17, death reigned through the one, much more those who reign, who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made what? Sinners. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Also, by one man, capital M, obedience, many will be made righteous. So a lot of times when we talk about sinners, we define sinner by people's actions. Well, that person's a sinner. Well, your actions are not what make you a sinner or not a sinner. See, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, by the disobedience of one man, Adam, many were made sinners. So that you actually became a sinner when you were born because of what Adam did 6,000 years ago. Well, that's not fair. But the good news is this, it says, by the one obedience, the obedience of one man, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, many will be made righteous. You didn't have anything to do with that either. So you're born one way, you're born because of Adam, you're made a sinner. But when you're reborn, or as Jesus calls it, he says you must be born again, when you're reborn, you're actually reborn as not a sinner, but now as you've been made righteous. And so when you go, when you, and we're going to talk a little bit later today about this thing about sinners and some things like that, but, you know, what happens a lot of times is once we've been changed, we continue to call ourselves what we were, and we continue to call ourselves what we were, we start to act out what we used to be. And so it's, it's, it's very important once God has changed your life, once God has changed you, if you were an adulterer before and you got saved, you're not one now. If you were an addict before and you got saved and Jesus transformed you, you're not one now. If you were a thief and you got saved and you're now made righteous, you're, you're not one now. 
See, those things are what you were, not based on what you did, but based on the way you were born. But when you're born again, you get a new nature. And that new nature is the same nature that Jesus has. And it says, moreover, the law entered, the, the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to shrink down verses 17 and uh, 19 in the next slide. It says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Whereas by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So if it's a gift, You cannot work for righteousness. You can't do anything to become or earn or grow in or achieve righteousness. You can only receive it. If I've not been made righteous, guess what I can't do? I can't reign in life. Because if I have not been made righteous, sin still has dominion over my life. But once I've been made righteous, it says that sin no longer has dominion. The only thing that, rule, if, I, if sin is reigning in my life as a believer, it's because I allowed it. Not because the enemy made me do it or the devil took it. No, it's because I allowed it. Plain and simple. All right. So how did we get made righteous? How did we get made righteous? What kind of righteousness were we made? Like, what does that look like? Jesus says, unless your righteousness, I think it's Matthew 5.20, says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, you can't get into the kingdom unless you're more righteous than a Pharisee. Anybody that righteous? On their own. Because you had to keep all 613 laws. None of them really did, but they thought they did. You had to do it perfectly. There was no exceptions. You couldn't get a 98 or 99%. You had to get 100. And he said, unless you're better than that, you can't get in. And so here's the thing. Nobody qualifies on their own. The only way we qualify is this. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. So what was Jesus made? Sin. He had no sin. He was righteous. He was made sin. And he's made sin for me so that I might become, so that you might become, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of, lot of, lot of people will call this the great exchange. It's that, that Jesus took all the sin from me, or God took all my sin and made that and put that on Jesus. Everything, not just the stuff I did in the past, but even the things I haven't done yet. Everything, all sin for all time, puts it on Jesus, makes Jesus sin so that I could be made the righteousness of God in him. See, here's what righteousness is. It's not doing right things. It's, it's uh, Whitney quoted Galatians 5.1, which uh, talks about standing. Standing. Righteousness is right standing. It's that I can stand before a holy God and not feel an ounce of condemnation, not feel an ounce of guilt, and not feel an ounce of inferiority. Imagine that. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation, and no inferiority because I'm standing before a God with the same righteousness that he has. That's hard to imagine because we think about all the bad stuff we do, but when Jesus changes you, he imparts the very righteousness of himself in you that I can stand before God. I don't have to hang my head. I don't have to feel shame. I can look him right in the eye, eye to eye, face to face. So it's right standing before God, but according to Romans 5.17, righteousness is also ruling over the enemy. It's that I can stand face to face to the enemy and say, eh, not going to happen. 
because I have his righteousness. Because he's imparted his righteousness to me. So righteousness, it says that Jesus became sin. He took all the stuff that disqualified me and gave me his righteousness, which now qualifies me. And how do we get that? How do I get his righteousness if I can't earn it? We, I can only receive it by faith. That's it. Here's a verse in Romans, uh, sorry, Romans 3. Let's read this, 321 to 24. It says, the righteousness of God apart from the law. Remember it said, unless your righteousness exceeds the law? Well, that's because his righteousness is apart from, it's like better than. Righteousness apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who what? You know, I was thinking about this week that God was the most inclusive person, and the, inclu- the most inclusive being in all of eternity. He didn't exclude anybody. It said that the righteousness of God is available on all and to all who believe. It doesn't matter how bad it was. A lot of times we it said the next part says, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, what we do is we take this verse out of context all the time. Anybody ever, like, uh, do you ever go to somebody and say, hey, what you're doing is not right? And it's like, well, you know, we all fall short. Well, we, we've all fallen short. Don't be pointing the finger at me because we all fall short. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is about because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, and because we've all fallen short, that's the very thing that qualifies all of us to receive his righteousness. Like, this isn't an excuse to sin. This is a verse isn't an excuse for failure. This verse is a qualifier that we all qualify. See, let me, let me, uh, let me pick, let me pick, uh, I'm going to pick Ray, Jordan, let's see. And, and Royce, this will be great. Come on. Now, what I want you to do, stand right here, face the crowd. I want you to all jump. I want you to touch that piece of wood up there. All right, Jordan, you're going to jump first. Give it your best shot. I want you to touch that wood. All right, pretty good, pretty good. Royce? Now, see, Royce, is, he, he, he's going to get about two inches off the ground. Go ahead. Give it your best. Whoa, look at that. All right. Ray, give it your best shot here. Like, really? Okay. Now, now who, who jumped the highest? Jordan. Who jumped the lowest? Royce. They all what? Fell short. See, it doesn't matter if it's just a little bit of sin or a whole lot of sin. All sin disqualifies you. See, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? (laughs) Well, my life ain't that bad. Well, it doesn't matter if it's that bad. Have you been made righteous? See, when you've been made, I'm not going to do it, but God would actually pick you up and let you touch that thing. I could, I probably can't do it, but yeah, go ahead and sit down, guys. No, I'm not picking you up. That's right. Because then we'd have to have a healing service for my back. But see, it, it, it doesn't matter because the standard is so high, the standard is perfection. So it doesn't matter how good you've been, you're not perfect. You weren't perfect. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, you're still not perfect because the standard is the, the glory of God, which is Jesus. And the fact that we've all sinned, The good news in that, it means that we've all qualified to receive by faith what he's already done. Like, because we can't do it. That's great news. So it says that it's by faith. But here, I want to read real quick because I want to read Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says this. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
Because as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's go through this real quick. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ. What's the good news? The good news is that he did it for you. See, if you, I, w- I want to show you something real quick. We look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and then we're going to go back to this. It says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So in this, these two verses, what the apostle Paul does here, he says that I'm shocked, I'm astonished. Whitney talks, she's reading Galatians. I, 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 I love the book. So the book of Galatians, there's people that are trying to convince those that were saved by faith and those that were made righteous by faith that now that you've been made righteous by faith, you've got to start doing certain things to stay that way. Paul says, no. He says, I'm shocked that you're turning away from him so quickly who called you into the grace of Christ, the gospel of Christ to another gospel, which is not another. He said, there's only one gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. He says, but there's people that want to trouble you, and what they want to do is pervert it and change it and make it something less than I intended it to be. And he said, I want you to stay in the grace of Christ and the gospel of Christ. So what he's doing here, he's saying that they're interchangeable. The good news of the Christ, the good news of Jesus, is the same as the grace of Christ. And the grace of Christ is the same as the good news of Christ. He uses them interchangeably. So back in Romans chapter 1, when he says this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of grace. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For for it is the power. This is miracle working power, dunamis. The gospel of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, is the miracle working power of God unto salvation, forgiveness, healing deliverance, protection, preservation, all those things that are encompassed in that word. He says the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation to who? To everybody that works hard enough to receive it. No, it says to everyone who believes. See, he's already done it. Everything you need in life is available in the gospel of Jesus. It's why people say, Well, we need more preaching on sin in the church. No, we don't. We need a preaching on the grace of Jesus that's already conquered sin. Because in the gospel of grace is the power to overcome anything you might encounter in your life. See, we don't need to... I get so frustrated. Do you think I need to tell you that sleeping with somebody outside of marriage is wrong? No. I don't need to preach on that. What I need to preach on is that Jesus paid for that sin. It's wrong. There's going to be consequences. But the grace, the gospel of Christ is the power. It's the power of God that will fix that thing. See, you need to know that Jesus has already paid the way, that Jesus has already provided a way. It's the gospel, the power of God and salvation Uh, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In it, in the gospel, in the grace of Christ, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, think for a minute. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God. So what did we become? We became the righteousness of God. What is revealed in the gospel? In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here's why you need to know the gospel. Because the thing that you've become is revealed in the gospel. Isn't that what it says? In it, in the gospel, is revealed the righteousness of God. The very thing that I become is revealed in the gospel of Jesus. If I want to know more about who I am, 
I need to spend time in the gospel of Jesus, in the grace of Jesus, because it says that it's revealed from faith to faith. What happens a lot of times is people have enough faith to get saved and born again, but then they don't move from that faith to the next faith, from that faith to the next faith. He says, as you begin to live by faith, I'll begin to reveal more to you your righteous standing before me. And what happens is we, well, yeah, well, we're just, we settle for, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Because we don't learn to live by faith, we don't learn to draw on grace, and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to begin to convince us of who we are in Him. Because that's what He wants you to know. And He says, when you get this down, I've got more. And when you get that down, I've got more. And you know what? I don't have it all, but I got so much, you're never going to talk me out of it. Like, I am so dialed into this. Like, it, like, if the church would get this one thing where we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness and we start reigning in life, we would be known like the first century church that it says in Acts 4, it says they turned the world upside down. Like, we would do that. Like, that's, that's not like something for 2,000 years ago. That's for today. Like, it's still there. As you continue to live by faith, God, through the good news of grace, will continue to reveal deeper truths of your righteous identity. I want to read this to you in the Passion Translation. Go to the next slide. It says, this gospel unveils a continual, everybody say this, continual revelation. Because none of us fully understand this thing about how God could take a sinner like me and, and just because I believe make me just like him. Like, like it, it's, it's not fair, and that's why it's grace. Like, I don't deserve it. But there's so much more that God wants to continually unfold. He says the gospel unveils a continual revelation of God's righteousness, a perfect righteousness given to us when we believe. See, here's, here's what a lot of people don't. You are as righteous this moment in time as you will be a billion years from now. Like, you can't grow in righteousness. You can't become more righteous. You can grow in grace. You can grow, it even says that Jesus grew in favor with God and with men. You can grow in favor, you can grow in grace, uh, but you can't grow in righteousness. You can grow in your understanding of righteousness, but you can't increase it. Guess what else doesn't happen either? You can't decrease it either. You can't, it doesn't grow or go, it, it just, you are what you are today, as perfect as you will ever be. It, who, who here has gotten saved in the last two weeks? Three people. I want to tell you this. You are as righteous as a person that's been walking with the Lord, living a holy and sanctified life for 50 years. As righteous. Because the righteousness that Jesus imparted to you in the last two weeks is the same that he has. It's his. It's the same as I got 40-some years ago. And it's the same as it ever will be. Like, it's, as, it's perfect. You can't mess it up. What I want, here's what I want to do. I want to read this story, and we're going to read it quickly. I just want to, I'm not going to really teach through it because it's kind of long. Luke chapter 7, and it's verses 36 through 50. So I'll read them, and I want to go back and make, just make a couple points. This is a story I've really I've spent a lot of time on over the years. I like it. I like a lot of them, but I, I really am fond of this one. But it's, a, it's about a woman um, 
who is known in the city as a sinner. And she finds out that Jesus is eating dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. She decides to go to Simon the Pharisee's house and says that she, she breaks open this flask of, uh, of, of ointment, of perfume, and starts to anoint his feet. Don't get this story confused with the three other versions in uh, Matthew, Mark, and John that are talking about Simon the leper. This is Simon the Pharisee. This is a different story. So this is the only time this one appears in the Gospels. But most people think this woman was probably a prostitute. Uh, just prior to this in Luke 7, it says that Jesus has this reputation uh, of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in that context, right after, you know, he's talking about that, he said, you know, uh, you call me a wine-bibber and, and a friend of uh, tax collectors and sinners. And then right after that, Simon, this Pharisee, invites him to his house. And so it starts off in verse 36. It says, well, let me read it from my Bible because it would probably be easier for me to turn it around. It says, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. So when they would eat at that time, they would actually like lay down on the floor. So you have to imagine that Jesus is laying here. And we find out later in the story there were other Pharisees there as well. And, and Simon apparently is laying across from Jesus, and they're, they're having this conversation. I always kind of just like the part of me that thinks about stuff that's not important. How did the prostitute, how was she so comfortable going to the Pharisee's house? Like, like had she been there before? Yeah. Like, she just walks right in. Like I said, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> It says, and she brought an alabaster flask of oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman is touching him, for she is a what? So here's Simon. He, he's eating, but he's looking at Jesus, and he sees beyond Jesus. And the woman, is she's overcome with emotion. She's crying, washing his feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair, and then she breaks this ointment. She, she anoints his feet with these, this perfume. And here's Simon the Pharisee. He says, if this man were a prophet. And he's thinking this. He's not saying it. He's thinking it. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. If this man were a prophet, he would know who. He would know her nature. He'd know what kind of woman she, he'd know her nature that she's a sinner. And he'd also know what manner of woman is, that she's, she's got a reputation. Like, he would know what type of woman is touching him. And as I read this this week, I, I really felt like God just kind of spoke to me these two words. And because a lot of times, here's what happens is, as we deal with the world, as we deal with people, there's certain things that we find more sinful than others. Right? In God's eyes, it doesn't matter if you can jump an inch or three feet. You all fall short before you accept what he did. But in our eyes, we tend to categorize sin, if you will. And there's certain things that we don't want to get too close to. What I, what, what I felt like God was saying is we have a selective proximity. That there's certain 
people's sins that we don't want to let within a certain space around us. Like, I've got a certain personal space that you're not welcome to be in, inside of. It's almost like, you, if you remember, at least when I was in high school, you're afraid of getting the cooties. Like, there was always that one kid that carried the cooties, whatever the cooties were, like somebody carried the cooties, right? And if you touched them, what'd you get? Yeah, you got the cooties. And then if I touched, uh, guess what? I got the cooties, now I'm going to give them to Autumn. And, and I think sometimes we think that if we get allow people in this proximity, whether it's in our personal space, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our church, that somehow that's going to rub off on us. And what I see in the life of Jesus, it says that he, he wasn't bothered by the fact that a woman who had a bad reputation was actually anointing his feet. If you think about other people that touched Jesus, you know, in Mark chapter 1, it talks about a leper, a guy with leprosy that, that says, I know you're able to heal me, but will you? And Jesus says, I will. And it says he reached out and touched him, and immediately he was made whole. In Mark chapter 3, it says, those that were afflicted by demons, it says, as many as touched him, the demons fled. In Mark chapter 5, we see a woman with has an issue of blood for 12 years. It says, if I may touch but the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And in Mark chapter 6, because I guess she told so many people what happened, it says, everyone who had diseases sought to be touched by him, for as many as he touched were made whole. See, Jesus wasn't offended by sickness. Jesus wasn't offended by demons. Jesus wasn't offended by disease. Jesus wasn't offended by sin. Like, it didn't bother him. But somehow we put up these protective walls where as if that person's stuff might jump on us. If I'm reigning and ruling in life, guess what's not going to happen? It's not going to jump on me. See, I can serve people at a different level because their issues aren't bothering me because I've learned how to rule and reign in life. Would you think that you could actually serve and love people better if you didn't have to worry about it? If you were so confident in your righteousness and your right standing and that God has forever perfectly changed you, that you could walk up to anybody and lay hands on the sick, that you can cast out demons, that you can raise the dead, that you can do anything that Jesus commanded because his word is what enables you to do it. It says, if he was a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor that had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. So Jesus basically says this. He says, a, a denarius at the time was equal to uh, one day's pay for, for a laborer. So let's just... For easy math, let's just say, so one has owes 50 days worth of pay, and the other owes 500 days worth of pay. We can say it's 5 grand and 50 grand, or 10 grand and 100 grand, whatever math you want to use. But at one point, they must have been able to pay. Because who would loan money to somebody that couldn't pay? Like, I wouldn't. Like, I'm going to loan money to somebody I know is going to pay me back. And so there must have been a time in their life when they were able to pay. And so he loans them this money, but it says when they both got to a place in their life where they were unable to pay, he freely forgave them both. And see, that's the place you have to come to in your life. You have to get to a place where you realize, I can't do it. Like, I can't earn this. I... I can't live right enough 
to be made right with God. As long as you're continuing to make payments, he's going to let you. But the moment you say, I can't do it, boom. It says he freely forgave them both. And so he says, which one will love him more? He said, well, I think the one that they for he forgave the most. So it makes common sense, right? If this one owes 50 and this one owes 500, or this one owes 10,000 and this owes 100,000, the one that has the bigger debt forgiven would naturally love the creditor more because they were forgiven of a bigger debt. And so when we read this, it sounds like he's talking about quantity. It sounds like, like, and all of a sudden we're like, well, I haven't been forgiven of much. He's, Kristen's done way more worse things in life than I have. And since she's done worse things, and she's, she actually hasn't, but, but let's just say she had, and she's been forgiven of worse things, then logically you would think, well, then she would be able to love the guy that forgave the debt more because she had more to be forgiven. He's actually not talking about quantity because it's not the quantity of sins that makes you a sin. I'm going to leave you hanging for just a minute. He says, he turned to the woman in verse 44 and said, he said do you see this woman? Now, I find it interesting. Simon referred to her as a sinner. Jesus refers to her as a woman. Doesn't actually call her that. It says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, like you didn't even greet me. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Let me just read this and we'll go back to it. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him and began to say to themselves, who is this that, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He says, whoever has been forgiven of much does what? Whoever has been forgiven of much loves much. And whoever has been forgiven of little, loves little. Here's why it doesn't matter how much sin you've been forgiven of, because all sin will keep you out of a relationship with, with God. So it takes faith for him to make that change. But he says, whoever has been forgiven of much, that word forgiven is in the perfect tense. And it means this. It means completed in the past, never to have been or be completed again. It's one and done. It's one for all time. So think of it like this. Whoever has been forgiven once and for all time, never to be completed again, will love much. Whoever has been forgiven of little, that forgiven is in the present tense. And here's why I think it's talking about time and not quantity. So this word little it means small in, in number. It also means small in intensity and also means small in time. Think about this for a minute. Jesus said this. You remember when, when the disciples are in the boat and the storm's coming and, and they're going, we're going to die. And Jesus gets in and the storm stops and he says, oh, you of little faith. So he wasn't talking about a small quantity of faith because later in Matthew 17 he would say this, whoever has faith the size of a mustard seed will say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will obey you. So it's not the quantity, it's not, small doesn't mean quantity, small means short in duration, short in time. And, and so he says, oh, you of faith of short duration, you, you didn't stay in the game long enough, you, you gave up too soon. And so what he's saying about forgiveness of sins is the same thing. Whoever has been forgiven of much, whoever understands that your sins have been forgiven once and for all time, never needing to be repeated again. How many times did Jesus die? Once. In the Old Covenant, you had a present tense forgiveness. When you would sin in the Old Covenant, 
in the temple, what would you do? You'd sin, you'd bring an offering, the priest would sacrifice it, you'd be forgiven. Until when? Well, the next year on the Day of Atonement, but what if you individually sin? I'd get another sacrifice. I'd take it to the priest. I mean, there was a continual sacrifice, like nonstop, because people never quit sinning. And so I'd sin, I'd sacrifice, I'd be forgiven. I'd sin, I'd sacrifice, I'd be forgiven. I'd sin, I'd sacrifice, I'd be forgiven. He's saying when you live with an old covenant mentality about forgiveness, you're never going to walk in the freedom to love and serve people the way I really want you to. Because what happens is you spend your whole life trying to stay and get forgiven instead of realizing that I've been forgiven once and for all time, and I don't have to deal with that now, and I'm actually free to go serve people, actually love people to a greater degree. I mean, could you imagine if you didn't have to worry about every day about getting forgiven? Better say your prayers before you go to bed, because you might die in your sleep. I used to do that. I would lay in bed, God, I'm sorry, oh my gosh, I thought of a naked woman today, I'm sorry, I've oh, I, I, I cut that person off in the mall, like, you won't, like, what if you miss one? See, we think of sin as being these egregious things, but actually, whatever is, Paul says this, whatever is not of faith is sin. Anytime you worry, doubt, do something that's not in faith, you're, you're living in sin. When you know to do right and don't do it, it's sin. When you cause a brother to stumble, that's sin. You're probably sinning right now. You don't even know it. Thank God that Jesus has made me righteous. See, it's said that Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus into his house. And I think this is where the bulk of the Christian church lives today. We've invited Jesus into the house. But we're still living with an old covenant mindset of forgiveness. Like, if I actually could invite Jesus into the house and also live knowing that my sins have been forgiven once and for all time, I would actually serve and love people at a higher level. I actually wouldn't be worried about people coming into my space, sitting in my seat, entering my house, coming into our church, because I reign in life. I actually bring the reality of a better kingdom to this one, like because we've been entrusted Signed this. What word is in the middle of forgiveness? Here's what I think this week. What most people call forgiveness is actually for sale now. What most people call for is actually for sale. See, when I spend my time trying to stay forgiven and get forgiven and work for my forgiveness, then I put that same burden on you. Did you ever see somebody stuck in sin and you think, boy, they need to pay for what they did? Or, if you do this for me, then I'll forgive you. I've never said that to my wife. She's never said that to me, but I'm lying right now. See, but what happens when I realize that I've been forgiven of much? See, when Jesus... I'm just, God brought this to mind. A 
It says that we forgive others because what? Because he already forgave us. See, I'm not forgiving other people in order to get forgiven. I'm forgiving other people because I've, I've been forgiven. And see, I can actually love people at this greater degree and serve people because I'm not worthy. See, you, 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 can't, you can't give what you don't have. Like, if you don't recognize this and understand this, then you're, if you think God's always demanding from you and, 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 and exp, you know, you better, you better repent, you know? Yeah, you need to repent. We should be repenting daily, changing your mind. But if I'm spending my entire life begging God to forgive me, then I don't realize that I've already been forgiven. I'm going to actually project that onto other people. And when I should be giving them forgiveness, I'm actually selling them forgiveness. It makes a world of difference. It makes a big difference. Jesus looks at the woman The Pharisees that are sitting at the table, they're like, who's this man that forgives sins, present tense? Because that's all they know. Jesus looks at her and says, woman, your sins are forgiven, perfect tense. Your faith has saved you, perfect tense. Go in peace. See, what Jesus wants you to know today that when you repent and believe the gospel he's already forgiven your sin that, that, that part of the transaction's done he already became sin but when you believe it then that gets put on your account his righteousness gets put on your account and so since Jesus's righteousness never fluctuates neither does yours he said you been forgiven once and for all time, never to be repeated again. And do you realize in the entire New Testament from the book of Romans forward, we're never told to ask for forgiveness? If you can find it, I'll give you $100,000 challenge. It's not in there. See, all I need to do I don't need to ask God to do something that he's already done. See, he's already provided forgiveness. My job is what? All I do is receive it by faith. I don't, I don't have to ask him to do it. I just have to receive it. Those that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, that I can stand before God without condemnation, I can stand before God completely innocent, and without any inferiority, those are the ones that reign in heaven. Those are the world changers. You're a kingdom influencer. Like you carry more credibility than a Swiss knife. We need a word. We need a word for like, like better than Swifty. That's what we are. Like you, you carry the influence of Jesus. And I get that we're not trying to influence people because, see, an influencer changes the buying habits of somebody. We're not selling anything. But you know who is? The devil. He's selling a bunch of lies. And people are buying it. And you have the ability to influence them to reject his lie and receive what Jesus has provided. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today. Lord, I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you that when we've all failed, we've all fallen short at one point in our life, but God, that's the thing that actually qualified us to receive what you did. So I'm thankful that you took the thing that was meant for harm and actually turned it into something really, really good. 
we can have a relationship with you, that we can have your righteousness, that we can stand before God knowing that we've been made clean, that we can stand up to the enemy and say, not today.